This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 166th episode, we discuss the 1958 mystery thriller, Vertigo, for its 65th anniversary. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, written by Alec Koppel and Samuel Taylor, music by Bernard Herrmann, starring James Stewart as John Scotty Ferguson, Kim Novak as Judy Barton slash Madeline Elster, Tom Helmore as Gavin Elster, Barbara Belgettis as Marjorie Midge Wood, Henry Jones as the coroner, Raymond Bailey as Scotty's doctor, Ellen Corby as the manager of the McKittrick Hotel, and Constantine Shane as bookstore owner Pop Liebel. Recognition for this movie? Loosely based on D'Entre Le Morde, a 1954 novel by Pierre Beaulieu and Thomas Narsajak, Vertigo was released on May 9, 1958. While Vertigo did break even upon its original release, it earned significantly less than other Hitchcock productions and finished an estimated 13th among top-grossing films in 1958. Adding to the comparatively low box office numbers were the mixed-to-poor reviews at the time, with many critics singling out the pacing and structure of the story, as well as Hitchcock's departure from the romantic thrillers he had become known for. In an interview with Francois Truffaut, Hitchcock stated that Vertigo was one of his favorite films, with some reservations. Hitchcock blamed the film's failure on the 49-year-old Stuart looking too old to play a convincing love interest for the 24-year-old Kim Novak. Over time, the film has been re-evaluated by film critics and has moved higher in esteem in most critics' opinion. Every 10 years since 1952, the British Film Institute's film magazine, Sight and Sound, has asked the world's leading film critics to compile a list of the 10 greatest films of all time. In the 1962 and 1972 polls, Vertigo was not among the top 10 films in voting. Only in 1982 did Vertigo enter the list, and then in 7th place. By 1992, it had advanced to 4th place, by 2002 to 2nd, and in 2012 to 1st place in both the crime genre and overall, ahead of Citizen Kane, which was in 2nd place. In 2022, the Sight and Sound poll ranked Vertigo in 2nd place. In the 2012 Sight and Sound Director's Poll of the Greatest Films Ever Made, Vertigo was ranked 7th. In the earlier 2002 version of the list, the film ranked 6th among directors. In the 2022 edition of the list, the film ranked 6th in the director's poll. In 1998, Time Out conducted a poll and Vertigo was voted the 5th greatest film of all time. The Village Voice ranked Vertigo at number 3 on its top 250 best films of the century list in 1999, based on a poll of critics. Entertainment Weekly voted it the 19th greatest film of all time in 1999. In January 2002, the film was voted at number 96 on the list of the top 100 essential films of all time by the National Society of Film Critics. In 2009, the film was ranked number 10 on Japanese film magazine Kinema Junpo's top 10 non-Japanese films of all time list. In 2022, Time Out Magazine ranked the film at number 15 on their list of the 100 best thrillers of all time. In 1989, 
Vertigo was selected by the United States Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry in the first year of the registry's voting and eligibility. The American Film Institute has recognized the film on the following lists. 100 Years 100 Movies from 1998 at number 61, 100 Years 100 Thrills in 2001 at number 18, 100 Years 100 Passions in 2002 at number 18, 100 Years of Film Scores in 2005 at number 12, 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition in 2007 at number 9, and AFI's 10 Top 10 list in 2008 as the number one mystery movie. Vertigo currently holds a 92% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 100 score on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Dad, we will begin as we do each week. What is your relationship to this movie? Back in the uh, early 80s, when some of these movies were starting to be re-released, I uh, saw some of the Hitchcock films. Um, I had not seen too many or seen any that I could even remember much before that. So it slowly has evolved where I saw, I think, the 39 Steps first. I'm trying to remember what other ones I'd seen. But as time went by, as they're starting to release more and more of the films on uh, either VHS or DVD, or they're starting to be played more often on television, I would catch them. Uh, becoming a big Hitchcock fan during this time frame. I think the first time I saw this was sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. I may have been able to find it and watched it with your mother for the first time. But I think that's the situation. I was trying to see as many of his films as I could. I think I've seen most of his American productions. I think there's like four or five I have not seen. Well, I think you mentioned last week there was one that I don't remember having heard of. I Confess. Okay, I Confess was on that. I've not seen Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Actually, there's a bunch of Hitchcock films I've never seen. I know we had started to watch, was it one with um, Henry Fonda last year? And I can't remember the name of it. And we never finished it. The Wrong Man. Yes, The Wrong Man. I know that... You have not seen The Trouble with Harry, is that correct? That is correct. It's one of his comedies. I didn't see Family Affair, which I think is his last one, unless I have the name wrong. Family Plot. Family Plot, okay. And I haven't seen Topaz. I haven't seen the one with Sean Connery either. Marnie. There's quite a few in my gaps of filmography, but any time a Hitchcock film comes up that you and I discuss, my entire relationship to Hitchcock and Hitchcock films has always been through you because you are such a diehard fan and don't suffer any blasphemy towards Hitchcock in almost any way. (laughs) And yet this was not one that you really felt that I needed to see comparative to a lot of other films. We're going to get to that in a second, but I don't remember the first time I saw this one, but it's probably one of the least watched celebrated Hitchcock films that I've probably seen. I think this may be only the fifth or sixth time that I've seen it. It's not one that I've really gone back to and enjoyed to rewatch. It's not nearly as fun as To Catch a Thief or Dial M or Rear Window or North by Northwest. Even Psycho has an element of fun to it comparatively to this one. This one, it feels a lot 
I don't know, more deep than I'm willing to go on most Hitchcock movies. This one feels like a much more deep psychological analysis of multiple characters. Well, almost every Hitchcock film, the ending is overcoming whatever tribulation they're experiencing. And this one, it just kind of ends on a very negative note. Nothing positive ends up happening out of this, unless you can imply somehow that uh, Scotty is now purged of the the negativity associated with Madeline's death. But how is that going to be any different now that he has to deal with Judy's death? I don't think he feels responsible for that. I think that it is foreshadowed earlier in the movie when they're talking about Vertigo is incurable. I mean, go back to that first scene, not the cold open where he's on the rooftop and hanging from the gutter, but the second one where he's in Midge's apartment and they're discussing it. You can't be cured of vertigo unless you basically have a reversing traumatic episode that can undo all of the guilt and obsession that you've had before. And I do think there's an element where he says he can be free of the past and he kind of makes peace with it that he was the victim not the perpetrator. And his guilt is erased. But then again, I don't know. I mean, it kind of leaves it more open-ended than any other Hitchcock film. Well, and it does. He does. The vertigo is gone. Because the last thing is, is he steps right to the edge of the, the bell tower and looks down and has no problem. So, I mean, obviously at this point in time, it's gone. But it's still... <laughs> this is a shambles at the end. It, it's just not as satisfying to me. I mean, okay, um, Grace Kelly is exonerated in Dial M. Uh, James Stewart catches the, and Grace Kelly catch the murderer, Raymond Burr, in rear window. In Rope, the, 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 uh, Stewart is able to expose the two murderers. Every other Hitchcock film has a resolution of the plot, the story itself. This one's just left open, and it's just it's just unsatisfying to me. Again, I will disagree with you. There is resolution of the plot. It's just not the happy ending that you want. It doesn't satisfy whatever desire or need you think you have to have by this happy ending that often is not the case in regular life. Most things... You don't get what you want. I know. I mean, Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint and the train going through the tunnel at the end. I mean, that's ultimately what we want, isn't it? The only one I can think of that's more open-ended that I've seen is the ending of The Birds, which is a strange ending. Yeah, well, that's uh, Hitchcock's warped vision of apocalypse. But we'll get to that later this year. So what is this movie about? Obsession and desire. I think you're just parroting the critic lines. No, I thought about it a long time. I mean, how is it that you can become so enthralled with somebody that you barely know over, what was it, a week? To the point where their death becomes a uh, psychotic break and you end up hospitalized? I mean, there's something strange about the situation that 
is hard to fathom, I think, for the average person. I saw a comment somewhere that kind of unlocked it a little bit for me. The Vertigo is explicit in how he reacts in the film, and you get the certain camera angles and the quick pan in and pan out visual shots that are very famous from this, the um, musical cues, that sort of thing. But there's also the implicit vertigo that's in the film is him falling in love with her very, very quickly. That he just is lovesick so quickly for this woman. And it ends up causing him irreparable harm. That being said, one of the things that I thought about in trying to kind of diagnose the film is if you've ever had a close relationship with anybody, let alone a a romantic relationship, that has gone poorly, there's usually one precipitating element or one moment that you'd love to go back and redo over. And for him, that became the bell tower, just as it was, you know, his physical incapability became manifested in the policeman's death at the beginning of the movie. And I think a lot of the guilt and the anguish and the pain that's inflicted is a lot more psychological in this film as opposed to physical, where Hitchcock was good at drawing your attention to certain things and creating a suspense and a psychological mistrust or thrill within the audience's mind, but never usually left us out in the dark and wasn't trying to play things behind the scenes. This is one of the rare films where I thought that he went that little extra to keep subtleties within the writing, the music, the direction, and create something that was a lot deeper comparative to a lot of his other films that are more, I would say, general entertainment fodder. I understand, and, and having watched it again with a more critical eye, I can see why a lot of a lot of uh, filmmakers and such hold it in high esteem because some of the techniques, some of the things that were utilized, the camera angles, the shots, the techniques that were done to show, are extraordinary. But I think the story lags and is boring at times, and I didn't find that much suspenseful about it. It's more a story about a psychological situation impacting one individual and how he's dealing with it or not dealing with it in this particular case. And I I just don't find it as entertaining or as satisfying as other films. I mean, in fact, I'm not even sure. I mean, from a technical standpoint, yes, it's his best film, but overall... I, I would rate Psycho, Rear Window, better films overall because they're entertaining. They're, they, make a, they have a more significant impact on the public. They're in, held by most people in higher esteem. And they're still technically brilliantly done. Not maybe to the same extent as Vertigo is, but they speak to the public more population in general more. Well, before you get too much further down that road, what you're going into is a lot of what we're going to judge this movie on as far as the greatness, not the best. I mean, if we're going to talk about his best film, I think you and I probably both agree that it's Rear Window 1, probably Psycho 2. And we've done both of, 
well, excuse me, we haven't done Rear Window yet on the program. And we're going to get to most of his major films. We've done Rope. Yes. We've done North by Northwest. We've done Dial M. We've done Dial M. But because this is such a break from everything else that he seemed to do, I do think there's an element that will always be attractive for critical people that aren't us. I know. And I think, you know, if you look back at it, this was in the height of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And a lot of people feel that Hollywood kind of shunned him because he was producing and directing things for commercial success. I mean, he came from a poor background and money was extremely important to him. And so, you know, he did television for that and a lot of people held it against him. So I think to some extent, Vertigo is a backlash. It's, hey, you know, yeah, I do this other stuff for money and and for you know entertainment value on television, but I can really put out the good quality, critically acclaimed stuff too. And so I'm going to show you what I can really do if I want to and can spend the time. And so I think Vertigo is uh, as much an in-your-face moment for Hollywood as anything. Well, I know there have also been quite a few academic studies that liken the film, even though he was not the writer, as something very close to his own struggle with Hollywood. So I think there is something possibly there. Maybe we're grasping at a few straws, but he clearly had an obsession with trying to make Hollywood appreciate him in a way that he never was understood in his time. But before we get too much further, let's give some background on the film. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. In Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, the maestro of suspense takes us on a dizzying journey into the recesses of the human mind. James Stewart stars as Scotty Ferguson, a former detective burdened by his fear of heights, a phobia that gradually becomes a metaphor for the vertiginous nature of desire itself. When Scotty is enlisted by an old acquaintance, Gavin Elster, to investigate his wife's peculiar behavior, the stage is set for a tale of passion and deception. Kim Novak, a vision of ethereal beauty, portrays Madeline, the object of Scotty's infatuation. As Scotty falls deeper into the labyrinth of mystery and obsession, Hitchcock deftly unveils the thin thread connecting reality, and fantasy. As Scotty becomes entangled in a torrid affair, the film takes a dark and unexpected turn. The boundaries between truth and illusion blur, leaving both the protagonist and the audience teetering on the edge of a precipice. In a climactic twist that leaves us reeling, Hitchcock shatters our expectations and forces us to confront the fragility of our own perceptions. Vertigo is a tour de force of psychological cinema, a mesmerizing exploration of the dark recesses of the human psyche, with its haunting imagery and an intricate web of deceit. The film lingers in our consciousness, leaving us questioning the nature of reality and the depths of our own desires. Thank you. Did you know? The opening title sequence, designed by Saul Bass, makes this the first movie to use computer graphics. Did you know? Uncredited second unit cameraman, Erman Roberts, invented the famous zoom out and track in shot, 
now sometimes called the contrazoom or trombone shot, to convey the sense of vertigo to the audience. The view down the mission stairwell cost $19,000 for just a couple of seconds of screen time. Did you know? This movie was unavailable for three decades because its rights, together with four other movies of the same period, were bought back by Sir Alfred Hitchcock and left as part of his legacy to his daughter Patricia Hitchcock. They've been long known as the Five Lost Hitchcocks among movie buffs and were re-released in theaters around 1984 after an approximately 30-year absence. The others are The Man Who Knew Too Much, Rear Window, Rope, and The Trouble with Harry. Did you know? The Mission San Juan Batista is a real place, but the tower had to be matted in with a painting using studio effects. Hitchcock had first visited the mission before the tower was torn down due to dry rot, and was reportedly displeased to find it missing when he returned to film his scenes. The original tower was much smaller and less dramatic than the film's version. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for its 20th anniversary, we are discussing the romantic drama Lost in Translation from 2003, directed and written by Sofia Coppola, starring Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson, Giovanni Ribisi, and Anna Faris. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, best performance is up next. Who do you have down? If you'd have asked me before I rewatched it this last time, it would be different than what I picked. But I'm going to go with Hitchcock. Simply because of so many of the little things that I missed as far as camera angles, camera shots, how things were done, how the scenes were set up, and all the intricacies involved in it. I have him as my best secondary performance. There's a technical marvel to this movie. And watching some of the extra additions we had on the Blu-ray that we watched over the weekend, you can see how obsessive he could be with all of his movies and accomplishing the vision that he had. This is no different. I do think from a technical standpoint and the depth comparative to some of his other movies, this is probably, as we said, a top five of his movie, you know, as far as his skill level. If you're talking the peak of what he was capable of, this is pretty darn close. And for this to be followed up with two other all-time classics in North by Northwest and Psycho, he was on a heater at this point. It had been a couple of years since he'd made like one of the really great classics that we remember at this point. I think To Catch a Thief is probably the last one that we really recognize as being one of his overly fantastic films, although we did The Man Who Knew Too Much on the show, and that also came in between these two, or in between those two movies. But I only went with him as my best secondary, in no knock to him at all, because I think he deserves as much credit as he should get. There's just one person as far as what they did was iconic to me that stood out more and makes the movie. And I know we had somewhat of a similar debate when we did Psycho, but for me, it's Bernard Herrmann. The score to this is just outstanding. It's the number one thing that I think about anytime I watch this movie, because it highlights and encapsulates so many of the feelings that you're having on screen, much in the same way that he did one of the probably best scores 
for a horror film you will ever hear in Psycho. Yes. Who is your best secondary? I went with with uh, James Stewart. His performance was very subtle. He did a great job of acting. The only reason I couldn't give him best was, and I don't know if it's him or the character or the or the movie itself, but I had a hard time being empathetic with him because I didn't understand the obsession, and uh, so that's why I went with secondary. But maybe that's part of it. It, it. There's just something unrelatable about either Stewart or the character or both in this film. I find that interesting. I really don't have too much of an issue with ever being able to connect with Stuart, if but only a charismatic level. And that's why I put him as my most charismatic. I thought he was easily the most charismatic character in the movie. I mean, theoretically, you could probably put the music on another level as well. But if I'm just doing it on the very base elements, he's the most compelling of anybody in the movie because I actually find Kim Novak's character to be kind of off-putting. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's a little bit of a strange one, comparative, because we've talked now ad nauseum for a half an hour about how this movie doesn't necessarily appeal to us, to find a charismatic. But what did you have down? I have Kim Novak. <laughs> okay. I mean, she herself, as Madeline... I don't know. I mean, I can see the the desire that would be ex- in existence with her. I thought she uh, had a look or feel that filled the screen for the most part. And so the acting itself, uh, regardless of the charismatic aspect of it, I just thought she visually did a lot to enhance the film itself just by how she presented herself. Fair enough. Best scene, I have a lot of different nominees to this one because there are a lot of fragmented small portion scenes in this as opposed to things that you could extrapolate that are much larger. So I have the opening scene at Midge's. Then I have following Madeline when he starts to actually like track her down. And that's a much longer like montage sequence when he goes to the church and the grave, he goes to the museum, etc. Then I have Fort Point, which is when she jumps into the bay. I have back at Scotty's when she wakes up wandering together. Madeline takes her life, which is the bell tower scene. The first time the fever dream, which I think is, one of the most masterful scenes in the entire movie. Seeing Madeline everywhere, which I think is a little bit underrated as far as a sequence. Then I have Judy Barton, so the introduction to that character. The reveal, which, given how most Hitchcock movies go, you don't often get the full story about a third of the way, or with about a third of the movie left. Then changing Judy and the final confrontation. Out of those, did I miss any? No. I didn't put in the cold open just because it's kind of abrupt. Yeah. Other than that, I thought I covered just about everything. But what do you think is the best scene out of those? To me, it's Judy becomes Madeline. And the reason is is because people in relationships have this tendency to try to mold their 
person they're in the relationship in to something they want as opposed to who the person really is. And uh, that part of the film spoke to me more than anything because I see it so often. I think a lot of the frustration and potential decay of a marriage or relationship is based upon people going into it thinking, ah, I can change them or I can make them into something I really want and their inability to get that ends up frustrating and the blame gets placed on the person that they're trying to change. Just my own perception of what I see in a lot of relationships. And so I think that scene in and of itself and the interplay, you know, like it shouldn't matter to you, just do it for me. And he just keeps pressuring and pressuring. I think that scene speaks so much about obsession, about relationships, about desire, about control, that I just thought it was a, a very well done overall. I think it's a fair point. Certainly not something I considered. That part of the movie's always been a little bit strange to me as far as the logic behind it. But I guess from a, an emotional standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. I would probably go either between the first bell tower scene or the fever dream. I think I'm going to fall on the fever dream just because of the technical mastery of all of it between the color changes and the intensity, the music. It's just probably one of the more iconic things from the movie that I, I really remember. It's not the most indelible thing, which I'll get to in a little bit, but it is, you know, at least something that I, I would take away from the film just about every time. Favorite scene for me, I'm going to go with the reveal, just because I know it comes a little earlier than we're anticipating, and it really sets up the last part of the movie, which the question then becomes, will he figure Judy out? But the way, especially the first time you see it and it's constructed and what happened, it gives you a little bit of that, oh, now I'm on the inside of what's happened. And you kind of are ahead of Stuart, and so that gives you a little bit of power as an audience. So I do appreciate that, actually, even though I know it's been one of the points of criticism about the movie over time. For me, it's the necklace scene. Because that's the point where you realize, ah, he's figured it out. And not only that, but then you realize, oh yeah, this guy is so cool and calm about it. He's figured out what's going on. He knows exactly what has happened. He has been played. He's been played not just once, but twice now. Yet he's still so calm and so able to handle the circumstances. And then you remember... This guy was a police officer, a, a detective for years. And all of a sudden, he, you know, he's got that ability to feign disinterest or to show a emotion, no emotion, whatever, however you want to put it. I, I thought that was uh, very well done and very uh, enjoyable. Most indelible moment for me is going to be the final bell tower sequence. Yes. She sees the nun, she falls to her death, and it's Stuart standing from the bell tower looking down. 
But uh, remember, though, the nun did not come out and look like a nun. The nun or it was mm. a, instead a shadowy figure. It wasn't until after she fell that the nun became, or climbed up into the light and you could see who it was. Okay, it's part of the final sequence that I've never understood. And I was going to ask this in remaining questions, but we'll do this now. I don't understand why she would be so afraid of a shadowy figure. And then it becomes the question, did she fall or did she jump? Okay, and by that, are you saying, was it intentional or unintentional? Exactly. Because I think she jumped, but I don't think it was her intention to jump out of this bell tower. I think it just sh- it shocked her, it shook her, because everything that she had done is now coming back, and she could feel the weight of everything that was involved, both the deception and now the second deception, because she wants what she could have had but could not get because of the previous deception. I think it clearly shows that she herself developed feelings for Scotty as well, but because she is Madeline, she cannot do anything about it. And instead, she then perpetuates this second scenario that will allow her to reinsert herself into Scotty's life. And I think at that moment when he's telling her what's going on and tells her everything, she's so aback, taken aback because everything is now clear and she's just one raw level of emotion and fear as to what's going to happen to her and everything else, it would not surprise me for her when somebody startles her like that coming up, a a figure coming through that's black and dark and you can't see who it is, to react by jumping backward. And then ultimately that means going out the bell tower. I had always assumed it was unintentional, but this last time it just started to stick in the back of my mind. I know that because she screams that we all are made to feel that it's unintentional, but given where her life would be at that point, that she's basically lost everything, it would not shock me if there was a bit of intentionality to it. I can understand your point because, I mean, obviously she's going to be implicated in a murder and she'll be a, uh, an accessory to a first-degree premeditated murder, which I believe in 1958, California still had the death penalty. Very possible. Well, anyway, that'll take us to our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this June... Friend of the show, Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast, and I are back with our special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stanley rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month, we're covering the much-maligned Phase 1 movie, The Incredible Hulk from 2008. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Robin Wagner, 89, American set designer, uh, worked on The Producers, Jesus Christ Superstar, 
City of Angels, Victor Victoria, Young Frankenstein, Angels in America, Dreamgirls, won the Tony Award in 1978, 1990, and 2001. Yes, he must have been one of the titans of set design on Broadway. To have these many major productions under his belt and multiple Tonys, I'm sure he was one of the known titans of this industry. James Lewis, 63, American singer, was in the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And then John Beasley, 79, American actor, was in the film Rudy, or the TV show Everwood, and the movie The General's Daughter. As well as The Soul Man, The Apostle, The Sum of All Fears, and The Mighty Ducks. It was not a guy that I would have recognized immediately from just a name or from his filmography, but he's one of those that you see a picture, and again, you're like, oh, I've known that guy my entire life. He's been popping up in every fifth movie in something. And so it's another one of those that I'm glad that we recognize them because I may not have really taken much time or much stock to appreciate a lot of the character actors that we've done so much to uh, take a look at, not only when they pass, but in their movies. And we did a special character actors episode a while back, but it's just another one where you see these people pop up, you don't know their name, but you appreciate when they're on screen because they make as much of the movie as just about anybody else. Yeah, I agree. And, and some of these character actors have made a, I mean, not a great living. They're not big stars or not household names. But they've made a living. They've raised a family. They've contributed to the arts. They've contributed to the films, television, theater, and they've done a nice job. That's uh, I, I, one of the reasons why I enjoyed doing this, even though it's kind of a, uh, um, a sad time as well as a joyous time. But just to have an opportunity to honor them and what they've accomplished in their lives so that at least they have that recognition at this point. And so we take a moment to recognize these for their contributions to theater, the arts, and music with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best lines. I only have four entries here. Not very many for this movie, as far as I'm concerned. No. Number one, Scotty. Don't you think it's kind of a waste for the two of us, Madeline, to wander separately? But only one is a wanderer. Two together are always going somewhere. Judy, couldn't you like me, just me, the way I am? When we first started out, it was so good. We we, we, we had fun. And... and then you started in on the clothes. Well, I'll wear the darn clothes if you want me to, if if you'll just like me. Scotty, you shouldn't keep souvenirs of a killing. You shouldn't have been that sentimental. Scotty, I'm responsible for you now, you know. The Chinese say that once you've saved a person's life, you're responsible for it forever. And so I'm committed, and I have to know. Madeline, so... Little do I know, it is though you were walking down a long corridor that, that once was mirrored, and fragments of that mirror still hang there. And when I come to the end of that corridor, there's nothing there but darkness. And I know that when I walk into the darkness, 
that I will die. Scotty, one final thing I have to do, and then I'll be free of the past. Scotty, one doesn't often get a second chance. I want to stop being haunted. You're my second chance, Judy. You're my second chance. Scotty, Midge, who do you know that's an authority on San Francisco history? Midge, that's the kind of greeting a girl likes, not this, hello, you look wonderful stuff, just a good straight, who do you know that's an authority on San Francisco history? You have any more? Nope, I'm out. I am too. So let's go to the Stanley rubric and grade this one out. Legacy is up first. Would you like to go first or second? (sighs) Uh, Go ahead. All right. From a legacy standpoint, I would think it's pretty accepted now that this is an industry five, at least among the critics and a lot of the film historians, enthusiasts, etc. I'm really not even going to debate that point. I think even you would accept that. However, I think this is a pretty middling entry as far as Hitchcock movies go. It's not nearly as famous among the public as North by Northwest, Psycho, Rear Window. Those come to mind quite easily for people who enjoy a little bit easier pop entertainment than this one that is a much more complicated, layered film. So I gave that a three for an eight overall. I had very similar. I mean, it's a five. Having put the film away for 30 years so that it couldn't be seen, if that has a tendency to strengthen the value people put in it, because it doesn't have the opportunity to be picked apart the way some films are over a length of time. So I don't know if that had any impact. But industry, I set a five because it's gained to the point where, you know, I mean, it's up near the top of sight and sound and et cetera. I I gave it a little bit more than you did. I went with a 3.5 because even though a lot of people don't see it or think about it, if you mention it, it's still, I think, the public knows what it is. They probably haven't seen it, but they're familiar with what it is and what it's about. So I just went with a little bit higher. Which is why I went with a three, because I thought that on the name recognition and a few of the principal iconic pieces from it, I think a lot of people have seen the poster all over the place. They know of the trombone shot. They know of certain musical motifs from the movie. There's some recognition of it but it's not on the level of other famous classic films that would be up near the top. It's not a godfather. It's not even to the level of like Citizen Kane has a better name recognition than this movie. But it's not The Wizard of Oz. It's not Gone with the Wind. It's not The Sound of Music. It's just kind of in this flux of movies that people probably know offhand and can associate certain people with it, but don't necessarily have the firsthand knowledge of what it is because they probably haven't bothered to see it. Well, a few years ago, I had to be out in San Francisco for a business conference. And as a result, we took a citywide bus tour. And part of the bus tours, they took us to sites that were related to films that were shot in San Francisco. So obviously, Dirty Harry and some of those, as well as uh, Milk. Anything from Basic Instinct? That I don't remember, 
but I know they showed us several of the scenes or where several of the scenes were shot from uh, Vertigo. So to some extent, there's at least some level of recognition to the public that that would be something that they would do on a bus tour. Oh, yeah. I mean, they have dedicated bus tours just to this movie and its locations. I think one of the more outstanding parts of the film or the legacy is just the romanticism of San Francisco as a location. Well, part of the reason why Hitchcock was filming in San Francisco is is he actually bought a house just south of uh, San Francisco. And by filming in San Francisco, he can stay in his other house. He liked the climate in Northern California better than Southern California. It was a little cooler. It was more to his liking having grown up in England where it never really got overly hot, never got overly cold. So San Francisco and the San Francisco Bay just kind of appealed to him more. And he also didn't mind being outside of Hollywood as much as he could. So one of the reasons why he put San Francisco in a lot of films, especially this one, was so he could live in the house that he had up there and just go out and do shots and scenes from there. Well, anyway, that's a two, that's a 8.25 average between the two of us. Impact significance? I, I looked at a lot of the reviews that were being done, and they were very mixed. But overall, I think they're more positive than they were negative. So I went with a 3.5 for the industry. But the public kind of didn't connect with it at all. And the fact that it drew, it just broke even, did not draw nearly the numbers associated with it that other Hitchcock films did. I went with a three for the public. I mean, the fact that it made its money, it wasn't a loser, draws some. So that gives me a 6.5 overall. Yeah, you were definitely higher on both categories than I was because if you call those reviews positive, I don't know what a negative review is. I mean, when you talk about mixed, a lot of the reviews that I looked at were either like really neutral, which is to say on, or they would lean toward the positive, but it's not like they were effusive in praise at the time. I don't think a lot of people got this movie. There'd be a few here or there, but the majority of people either didn't understand it, didn't connect with it, sounds familiar, or just viscerally hated it. And given that there was a lack of recognition for the movie, and I know we've talked at length in other episodes how Hitchcock was not recognized in his time by any of the awards, save for Rebecca, it's not a shock that he didn't get any awards attention for this movie, but it didn't receive any. And it didn't seem to, like, garner any extra favors. It was kind of one of those passion projects that one of these auteur directors will throw out that they really want to do. And we probably look at it 10 years after the fact and we're like, yeah, that was probably pretty good. Kind of how I think a lot of the critics are going to come back around on Babylon about 10 years from now. Yeah. Because that's what it kind of reminded me of, at least in, in spirit. But... You know, there have been a lot of these types of auteur films that just didn't connect with people in the moment and needed time. I went with a two on the industry. With the public, I was a little bit kinder because at least it made back its money. So I went with a three there for a five. So that would put it at a 5.75 average between the two of us. Okay. 
novelty, I think this is significantly higher because I think this yes. is probably one of his most creative movies. And as far as the execution, the amount of camera work, suspense, I mean, it wasn't as suspenseful as some of his other movies, but it had a much deeper layering type of movie. And it was very different from anything else he'd really done. Yes, it's in some of the same story structure, but, you know, whether it's putting on the fog filters to create a dreamlike state or the color schemes with which he was almost obsessive about the production design and the costume designing. To me, this is a 9.5. I would agree. I had a 9.5 also. The only reason I couldn't give it a 10 is because the color aspect had been done before by in other films, but not to the same level. A lot of the techniques were either original or if they were not original, had not been utilized in the same way. Uh, the only points down I could give is, is because this was not the first psychological thriller that had been done. There had been others, but not a lot, but a few. I think if you're starting to introduce that, you're already talking about it's got to be dropped from a 9.5 even further, because I don't no. even want to go to that extent. If you want to pick a few nits and say comparative to like, other tens that we've had that it just doesn't quite on a semantic level rise to that, that peak of a 10 for you. That's fine. But then don't like keep throwing out different things to keep saying it. Cause otherwise you're going to make everybody think that this should be lower than the 9.5 we've already given it. No, I'm, I'm saying that these are just reasons why I couldn't go with a perfect 10. They're very minor and I didn't want to go anything more than that. So I'm at 9.5. All right. Classicness then. I'll give the category over to you. The biggest problem I have with this film is the manipulation and control of Judy to become Madeline at the end of the film. The Svengali aspect of it. And I also thought that there was not a lot of... I mean, it was a sign of its times with the inpatient mental health stay but it wasn't done in a very empathetic way so I had a little bit of problem so between the two of them I gave it some points down so I went with a 7.5 for classicness okay I think those are relatively minor points as far as I'm concerned I guess I can see a little bit more of the point of the manipulation but it wasn't much of a manipulation she knew exactly what he was trying to do, and she let him do it. I mean, there is a, a certain level of consent that she had to it, and breaking through the last barrier, it's not like he forced her to do it. He asked, and she agreed. So I'm not even sure that I would go that far. I think that I would probably put this at a normal baseline 7, save for it has a timeless aspect to it that I don't think has made this film age poorly and i would also say the execution on this movie is pretty high level so i had a nine and i think the average then between us it's going to be an 8.25 average is probably about fair rewatchability i don't think either of us is going to rank very highly i don't think we need to make too many arguments on this one i have it at a 6.5 i think it's an important film 
I know we've ranked other films that we felt that we needed to rewatch more often are like in the seven category, but for whatever reason, I just don't feel drawn to rewatch this movie very often. (sighs) This one was tough for me because having watched it again, I'm like, I understand it more now than I have. Maybe if I rewatched it again in a year, two years from now, it'll say more to me than what it has. So I went with a 7.5 simply because I think every time I seem to watch it, I like to or I like it more. And I think a 7 is probably what is a good settling point for that, for the average. So I can't be too upset with it. So for audience score, we had an 83% for Google users and a 93% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.8 overall. So to repeat the categories, we have an 8.25 for Legacy, a 5.75 for Impact Significance, a 9.5 for Novelty, an 8.25 for Classicness, a 7 for Rewatchability, and an 8.8 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of... Forty-seven point five five, and that will place it on our list, tied with the Bridge on the River Kwai. Wow. Okay. Remaining questions. We already talked about kind of that final sequence. I have to wonder, why would she go along with Elster's plan in the first place? Like, was she his mistress? Well, they don't really discuss it. It doesn't really matter. I mean, Hitchcock is famous for the MacGuffin. You don't need the motive. She did it. I suppose. Did she get paid? Did, was she his mistress? And part of it is is he abandoned and took off to Europe. I mean, I, I read that there was actually an alternative ending that was done, which yes. uh, was... A, actually, it's on the DVD, and I watched yeah, it. Yeah, which is uh, they're trying to catch Elster fleeing across Europe. She suddenly decided, you know... I'm really in love with him, and now Elster's abandoned me, and so now I'm going to go back to Scotty. It doesn't really matter. Ultimately, I don't think it does. There are a lot of things that are done for motives that we have very little comprehension about. I don't know. It just bothers me that there doesn't seem to be at least you know one line that emphasizes a motive or an explanation of why she would get involved in that scheme to begin with. It's not like somebody out in the street just goes, hey, you look a lot like my wife. You want to help play her out on the street so I can kill her? You're not answering a Craigslist ad for it. Well. Unless you're in Florida. Yeah. Did you have any questions? I mean, the trouble Scotty had to explain her quote-unquote murder what or suicide, which was really a murder to begin with, how the heck does he explain this one? He has a witness. Yeah, I know. He's got the nun. But even then, wow. Why were you in the bell tower? Well, what was his plan after he took her up there anyway? I don't understand why he needed to drive down there and confront the one site of his trauma in order to, like, rectify his guilt. That one just doesn't quite make sense to me. Yeah, well. And I'm sure that has to do with the ambiguous nature of it feels incomplete at the end. Yeah, I'm sure it was going to be exposure and conviction and pursuit for the homicide and all that. But 
I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. And that's one of the reasons, again, why I just have a hard time relating to this film. All right, final thoughts for the week? I have been reading just a ton of stuff in various uh, publications. The Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, the New Yorker, um, the Atlantic, on the end of both Succession and Ted Lasso. Um, we got to watch the end of Succession ourselves together. We're trying to watch or We got through about half of the last episode of Ted Lasso today over lunch. I finished it. <sighs> I cried for the entire last hour. Uh, okay. Well, I was hoping I was going to get home in time to watch it or finish it tonight before bed, but I guess I'll watch it by myself now. Well, I got some stuff to finish up here, so that's fine if you wanted to watch it. Okay, well, I'll start, and if you catch up, then fine. But um, it's just amazing what kind of impact these shows have. But, (laughs) you know, these are major cultural pieces right now. But what was it? Eight million people tuned in for the last episode of Succession? And I think it was like, I can't remember, it was like ten times that much for M.A.S.H.? 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Well, the pieces of our culture are much more fragmented. The notion of the uniculture or the monoculture is gone. There are very few things that bring everybody together. The Super Bowl is one of them. And that might be about it. Everybody's got their own feed on Facebook or Twitter or whatever else. They're silos of culture. And based on where you live also dictates a lot of the people that you hang out with or in the stuff that you pay attention to. And so I know that the general population has no interest and knows nothing about succession. Even from a few years ago, the ending of Game of Thrones is probably five times bigger than what this was. I thought this was a lot better. It still left me with a very empty feeling at the end of it, but I felt that it was at least quality compared to the final <laughs> moments of Game of Thrones. Well, that's the whole point of Succession, was is to show you that even though these people have all this money and power, they're really a bunch of putzes, and there's nothing about their lives that's worth you having any level of envy towards, other than the fact they can kind of just, like, flit around and do what they want and screw people over, they're not happy. You know, I think that's ultimately what the whole show or what the purpose of the show was, is to show that their lives, even though they've got money and power, aren't any better than anybody else's. This is basically the Jerry Springer show with money. I don't know. I just, with as many big cultural shows as we've had all ending about this same period and not knowing when we're going to get the next crop of things because they're all delayed. It just leaves you with a certain emptiness right now as to what is going to be defining culture going forward other than us just ripping at each other. I know it's, I think this is the, the it's, it's hard for people of your, age to understand, but when I grew up, we had ABC, NBC, CBS. You maybe had PBS, but they really didn't have shows. And so 
on, you know, on, on the morning, you know, on Tuesday morning, you would discuss what was on Monday night. And, you know, people would uniformly, if you watch TV, you had to watch a lot of the same shows. And it was, it was a cementing aspect of society. We have become so fragmented because of social media, because of television options, because of sports options. And on top of it, we just tend to seek out the same echo. I don't know where this is all going to ultimately end, but okay. So we'll see. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Let's never come here again because it would never be as much fun. Next week, for the 20th anniversary, we are discussing the romantic drama Lost in Translation from 2003, directed and written by Sofia Coppola, starring Bill Murray, Scarlett Johansson, Giovanni Ribisi, and Anna Ferris. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.